Uh, we are in First Thessalonians. We've been in our series entitled "Ready," and it, it's a. It, as I think of the term "ready," I I, I, I keep thinking of this uh, the the theme of the the Coast Guard. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or not, but in Latin it's called "semper, semper paratus," and it means always ready. Now the the Coast Guard have this this idea that they are always to be ready to go out to the, to the, no matter what goes on around them to be able to save people that are in danger or in peril, and they they have a, a, an unofficial model which is. We, we, um, we have to go out. We don't have to come back. And as I think about that, I think what a great term for discipleship and for our, our responsibility as believers. We're to always be ready to go out and tell the world about who Jesus is. We're to always be ready not just to go out and tell people about who Jesus is, but help people to grow in their knowledge of who Jesus is. See, we have this wrong understanding, a very myopic understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, and and I, I call it the one level, we have this like uh, one-dimensional level of discipleship. We think if we can just get a person to pray and receive Jesus and to surrender their life, we got them. That's good. They're now following Jesus. But that's not quite true. Biblically, salvation has three dimensions. There is the I am saved. That's the moment that I tr- put my trust and surrender to Christ and I receive him as Lord and Savior of my life. But then there is the idea of sanctification, which is I'm becoming more like Jesus. And then there's the, um, the understanding of glorification, that I will fully be saved and be with Jesus. So it's I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. So it's those three together, and we have a tendency to separate them out and focus just on step one and forget step two and three. Paul is writing to this this fledgling church in Thessalonica who had, in other words, taken step one. They said, I am saved, and they had received the truth of who Jesus is. But before Paul could grow them into their being saved, he has run out. I mean, he, has, he is forced to abandon this fledgling church because of persecution that arose there. I mean, Paul, as he would do, would go into different cities. He would start, if they had a Jewish population, would go to the synagogues, and he would reason from the scriptures from the Old Testament how Jesus is the Christ. And, he would, he, and many people came to believe through that ministry, and he had only been there three Sabbaths. We don't know if they were consecutive. We don't know if they were over several months, but we do know that it was under a year. So Paul had this fledgling church, and he's speaking someplace when this crowd comes, and they, they in essence, run him out of town. And he's fearful for this church. Though they had prayed to receive the Lord, he is afraid that all of his work, all of the things that he'd done was in vain. And so now he has had to flee. He's in Athens. He's so worried about what's going on there that he, he, he can't wait any longer, and he sends Timothy to, to discover what, what happened to them. And he learns that the church didn't just survive, but it began to thrive. And he then is, is showing them and telling them what it means to be a disciple of who Jesus is. And through his words to them, we learn a lot about what God has for us as disciples how we are to become fully developed disciples, how we can be ready for all that God has for us in Christ and what we can expect so that when it comes, we're not wondering, we're not sitting on our hands going, why is this happening to me? But we can fully embrace all that God has for us. And that's what we're going to learn about today, how to be fully developed disciples who are always ready for all that God has for us in Christ. So before we go any further, let's pray, ask for God to bless our time together. Father, I do pray today that you speak to us by the power of your Spirit, working through your living Word. Lord, may your Word cut the cancer of unbelief away from us. May we come into your presence in a mighty way that we might go forth changed and receive and know all that you have for us in Christ. 
So, Lord, today I pray for those who are struggling. I pray for those who are dealing with health issues. I'm praying for those whose minds are just not here. Lord, I pray that you, you rivet their attention right now and that you bring this word to bear upon their lives, that they might grow in their understanding of who you are and thus increase in joy. So, Lord, be in our message time now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So stay with me in the text. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully you can look off one or try to just to listen in very carefully. Paul starts off in verse 1. Therefore... When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Now, Paul's in Athens, which isn't that far away from Thessalonica, but he's now realizing that there's something going on in Thessalonica I can't stand. It's really bothering me that I don't know what happened to this church. And it says that he couldn't bear it. Actually, the word in Greek, the idea was keeping out water or having a big, huge weight upon them. And the care and the compassion that he had for them is weighing down on them. See, he didn't care enough that they just prayed the prayer, if you will. He wanted to see them grow and become more like Jesus. He understood that discipleship, the depth of it, that it's three-dimensional. And so his job was then to teach them and help instruct them in the faith. And he sends, he knows that he can't go himself because if he did, he would stir up another crowd and possibly put the Thessalonians in more danger than they were already in. And they'd already gone through some serious hardship. They'd already gone through some persecution. So Paul knew that if he showed his face around, that could cause some serious damage, maybe even the death of certain saints. So he sends Timothy. Now, Timothy was not a stranger to these individuals. Timothy was half Greek himself, so he knew the culture. He could blend in a little bit more seamlessly, perhaps in his dress or in his language or even how he he looked. Paul would have stuck out. So he sends Timothy in a bit of an undercover to investigate what's going on, and he sends him on his way. And we can see that if we're to be always ready, we need to be ready to go wherever God desires us to go. We need to be ready at all times to be and do whatever God desires us to be and do, to be ready to serve him in whatever way possible, even if it means going into dangerous situations. And so that's what he does. He sends Timothy to go do this. And we need to be ready to go. The question is, is are we ready to go? Why don't we go? We have many excuses. I have a mortgage. I have bills to pay. I've got my family here. I've got a job. But God calls us to go in different ways. Sometimes he wants us to go and speak to our friend or coworker. Sometimes he calls us to sell everything that we have and go into a foreign land. Like William Carey. William Carey didn't have any uh, formal theological training. He was, uh, he was quite old when he went to the mission field. I mean, he's not in his young, his 20s. He's a little bit older than that. He's, after he's been in a career as a cobbler, he doesn't have a lot of money. Not, and, he, and so he decides to go to India. And when they thought back in those days, they would go, he went from Great Britain to India, they thought they were going for life. There wasn't any furlough as much. There wasn't any coming home. They were going ready to die, and that's what he did. And there's others that had too. Jay Hudson Taylor went to China in that way. Mary Slessor, these are, Amy Carmichael, these are people that are willing to go wherever God desired them to go to not only share the gospel, but share their very lives that people might become more and more like Jesus. So where to go? Why do we go? Well, we go to evangelize the world. That's the first thing. That's why Paul went to the Thessalonians to begin with. He went to share who Jesus is. It is to compel us. See, the love of God, the love that we have for God should move us to do something and be something different for Him. It should overflow from us. And so we go to share the word of Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul wanted to do, and he had done that. But that wasn't all. He he then wanted Timothy to go, because he himself couldn't, to establish the faith of believers. I want us to look at our text right now. Look in verse 3. 
He, well, first two, he says, We sent Timothy, our brother in the faith, God's co-worker with us in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in your faith. We're to go so that we can establish people in the faith of Christ Jesus. Now, the word establish means to give support or secure something, to secure it, to buttress it, to strengthen it. It means, it means not teaching people what it means to follow Jesus, giving them reasons for the hope that they have in and through Christ, teaching them how to live as disciples. You know, I think many of us today, we have a very wrong understanding of discipleship. Matter of fact, one of the uh, churches that's one of the biggest churches in the United States is Willow Creek Community Church. It is 26,000 people are at their services each weekend. Their campus is massive. They are, have an influence all over the world. If you've ever gone to the building, it's, it's a and the parking lot is so big, it almost takes you 10 minutes just to walk into the church after you parked your car. It's a huge service. And they, they believed initially that if they had enough programs and could get enough people to participate in the programs that they have, that that would make disciples. And so they, they did a study beginning in 2003. And it was a massive study. They spent millions of dollars doing it, trying to discern the spiritual condition of all these people that came to their church. And after a four-year period, they realized something. They'd made a mistake. That all the programs that they did actually didn't help people become disciples. They realized that it was basics. How to read your Bible. How to pray. How to talk to other people. How to serve. How to give. These basic things are what really influence people. Matter of fact, Bill Hybels made a comment about this. He said, we made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. In other words, how to read your Bible, how to grow, not just come and get fed by, by the Word being preached, but how to feed themselves from reading and meditating upon the Word. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between the service, how to do spiritual practices, uh, such as praying, giving, meditating, studying the Word, fasting, and more aggressively, much more aggressively on their own. And they made some massive changes in their ministry in order to do that. And we see today, that's one of the missing components that we see in the church. That it's to help train you to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to disciple people. And which means, a disciple means learner, follower of Jesus. To become more like Jesus. How to pray. How to fast. How to give of our tithes. I mean, give our income. How to avoid and resist temptation. How to engage in entertainment properly, how to be spiritual men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, or be a satisfied single if that's what God has called you to. These are things that we need to teach to be disciples of Jesus, to help people mature on in their faith. Remember, I'm saved, but I'm also being saved. That's why we need to be together to help one another grow and become more like Jesus. And Paul is, is, is anxious because he's, he's concerned. He has such a great love for them, and he wants them to become fully developed followers of Jesus. In other words, they discovered Jesus. Now they need to be developed in Jesus. They could be deployed for Jesus. So we see that going on, that he wanted to establish them in their faith. But that's not all. Notice you see the next word, establish and exhort. Exhort. See, notice after establishing them in the faith, they need to be exhorted Exhort others in their walk with God. We need to exhort others in their walk with God. See, the word literally means close behind and call to. 
come alongside of. It carries the idea of strongly encouraging someone to do something. When I ran the marathon 50 pounds ago, um, I, I remember I had never run the full 26.2 miles. The, when you go through training, and you're supposed to be training months in advance for this race, and you start building up over time to build up your endurance. And you run, uh, you run maybe five, six miles a day when you're getting closer to training. And then you save your big runs for the weekend. So I'd run 10 miles. The next weekend I'd run like 12. After that I'd run 16. And then the two weeks before the actual race, they have you run, the, 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 the proper training has you run 20 miles. You don't run the full 26.2 miles. Because there's a mental thing that thinks if I do it, then I don't have to do it at the actual race time. So you have that goal still in your mind that you have to reach. Now, I had uh, gotten to, to the, it was the Chicago Marathon. It was 39 degrees the day of the race, and it had rained the night before. So where they had, they had 45,000 people gathering together. And you're gathering together out in the, the park uh, right next to the lake. It's all muddy. People take jewel bags, and they tie them to their shoes so that your feet don't get wet. Because trying to run like that with wet is not a good thing. And I remember sitting there, and it's cold. And then they, they have us line up in the race. And right before you get ready to race, they say it's getting ready to start. And next thing you know, people start taking off their sweats, and they toss them. And you're getting pelted because there are 45,000 people that are throwing their sweats because they want to be unencumbered when they run. And you're wedged in there like cattle. And they tell you that, that, that you can see the big, giant clock, and it counts down, and the finish line's way up ahead of you, and it says, go. And everybody shouts, but you don't move for 10 minutes because you're so wedged in there, you can't run. So you can't actually move to the starting line, and you have a chip in your shoe that tells when you actually begin the race. That's when your time actually begins. And so you start off the race, and you can't move very much at first because everybody's around you. I mean, it's, it would be hard to even drop out because there's no place to go. But as the race continues on, you get into, you know, mile, two miles, three miles, four miles, five miles, six, seven. People start to kind of thin out, spread apart. And by 10 miles, you might be feeling good. 15 miles, you're, you're kind of at a pace. You know, you're not going great, but you're, you're moving along. And you hit that 20 mile, and you're like, I've done this before, but I've never gone past that. When you hit mile 21, you hit this wall. And you get tired. And you don't want to continue to go on. You start doubting yourself, going, can I finish this race? I'd rather be over there. They have a, they have a coat, and they're, they're having an Auntie Anne's bagel right now. I'd, I'd like to be with them right now. That, that sounds like a lot of fun. I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. It's getting tired. But you know, all your family came out, and I remember running at mile 21. And next thing I know, out of nowhere, out of the sideline, comes a familiar face. It was a friend of mine named Andrew Katrenta. And Andrew had been a student of mine when I was a youth pastor. And he, next thing I know, he's running alongside me. He came to encourage me. He knew that I was going to be tired and that I needed help. And so uh, my pace picking up. I mean, your feet felt like they were in, in concrete, but now I, I'm, he's making jokes and helping me laugh and finish. And when we get into that last mile, he knows he can't be in that last mile part. They don't want people running with you then. So he goes to the sideline, and he's calling f- to me from the side. He's yelling at me as he's running alongside. And he's cheering me on, and it gives me the strength to finish. See, that's how we're to be in our spiritual walk. We're to, well, we're to exhort other people. We're to come alongside them when they're tired, when their family's hurting, when they're going through a hard time. We're to exhort one another. And some of us say, well, I need to be exhorted right now. And it strongly encourage you to finish the race. And I want to tell you right now, maybe you need to be exhorted. Maybe you're going through a hard time. 
Maybe you're facing a financial issue. Maybe, you, maybe you're facing a massive issue in your marriage. Maybe it's something with your children. Maybe you're facing the loss of a loved one. Maybe you're going through a hard time at your work. Maybe you're wondering where God is in the middle of this. And that's, why, that's another reason why we need one another to come alongside and encourage us, to push us on in our walk with Jesus. Don't give up. Keep running. God has something for you. He cares for you. He's not abandoned you. We do encourage and exhort one another in our walk with Jesus. We need to be together. And, and Paul knew the power of it. We established you in the faith. And now we're exhorting you to follow Jesus. We're pushing you. And we all need to grow. Don't, I, I, I see people and they say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all good with God. Well, what's, what's God calling you to? I mean, what are, you're good with God? What is he calling you to? Well, God and I have an understanding. When I hear people say that, I'm like, no, you have an understanding. And you are not understanding what God is calling you to do. God's calling us to go deeper, to go deeper in our walk with him, to be of further use in the master's hand, to give more of our life, to yield more of who we are, to give up ourselves and sacrifice ourselves. The reality is, is that most of us, when we really admit it, we're pretty selfish people. We want our own wills. We want what we want. God is saying, no, 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 you have to sacrifice yourself. If you're going to walk with Jesus, you're going to have to sacrifice yourself. Take up your cross. Lay aside your wants and your desires and take up his cross to do what it is that he has for you. So we have to remember that. We're to go wherever he desires. We go to evangelize the world. Establish the faith of other believers and exhort others in their walk with God. But when we do so, we have to understand this, that we're going to go through a hard time. We're going to go through a hard time. I mean, why do we need to be exhorting other people? Why do we need to establish them? We need to understand that there's going to be hardship. Do you know that, that God has destined that we go through hardship? That's a hard truth to swallow. For many of us, when we suffer, we think that something's wrong. We want to remove that suffering. But God is saying that I want you to grasp your destiny. And through Paul, he's saying, and Paul is telling them, don't you know we were destined to go through affliction? See, we need to grasp a hold of that, what God has for us. We need to grasp our destiny. Grasp our destiny. God has destined that if you will follow him, you're going to go through certain hardships. It is inevitable. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I had the, the pleasure of leading this woman to the Lord, and I did everything in my power to dissuade her from following Jesus. I am the worst evangelist in history. And the reason I told her, I said, I want you to understand what you are doing, that your life might get worse. You might have, you're going to have more trials, that the enemy now is going to come against you. I want you to understand that now you're going to have family turn against you and friends. That you're going, to, you're going to have struggles that you never have had before. Are you ready to do that? And she said, yes. I wanted them to understand, to count the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We need to grasp our destiny. And that's what Paul is sending Timothy, to remind them that you're going to go through hardships. And the first hardship that we're going to inevitably face is some type of persecution persecution. You will be persecuted. If you are truly following Jesus, you will be persecuted in some way or another. It is inevitable. Because you are the aroma of Christ. The scripture says that we are the aroma of Christ in 2 Corinthians 
that to the sum we are the smell of death. Have you ever smelled a carcass of an animal on the side of the road? You drive by it and you're like, oh, that's awful. Roll up the windows. Dude, change the air conditioner. That's bad. It just smells terrible. And see, that's how we smell to people that hate God. We, we remind them of their sin. They don't like that. They remind them that there has to be a change in their life. And people reject that. But to others, it says we are the smell of life and we're attractive. That people want to know what it is you believe. They want to know more about you. They look at your marriage. They look at your family. They look at your life. They look at your joy. They're seeing Christ in you. I'm not saying your life has to be perfect, but they're seeing something different about you because they see that your life is you're seeking to follow Jesus. We're going to go, inevitably, if we're living completely for him and we're testifying to him, there's going to be some who accept it and love it, and there's others going to be who reject it and hate it. And we can see this in the Apostle Paul's life. His life testifies to this. You can turn with me if you so desire. If not, you can see it on the screen, but it's in Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, and we get a really cool uh, episode of Paul's life. And we see here that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. They were telling him to reject Paul's message because they felt Paul was a blasphemer. Remember, Paul had been a Jew. He he had been a teacher of the Jews. And so the Jews couldn't believe and rationalize who Jesus is. They rejected him as Messiah. And so they rejected Paul's message because Paul was not only preaching that Jews could be saved, but Gentiles could be too, and they couldn't handle that. And so that they stoned Paul, which was an ancient practice where they would pick up stones and they would begin throwing and casting them at him until the person died. And Paul either passes out, and comes unconscious for a bit, they think he's dead, they leave, he ends up waking up, goes back into town. And then uh, the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city, and on the next day he went with, on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. He wanted to go and again, strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them in the faith. Remember, that's Paul's MO. They had been saved, they are being saved, and they will be saved. Three-dimensional discipleship. So they had come to know faith, faith in Christ. Now they are growing in faith in Christ. But this is what he says in saying through many, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. He's saying that you're going to go through tribulation. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will go through people who reject you, will come against you. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that because if we're aware of it, we can battle it and we can be ready for all that God has for us. And it won't surprise us when it comes at us. And we, ha- we have to remember that. And it's not only, by the way, Paul who said this. But Jesus himself said it in John chapter 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the vo- world, therefore the world hates you. The world's going to hate you. Now that's not it. Oh, hope-inspiring, or it seems to be encouraging to know that people are going to reject me. But it should, because they know that rejected Jesus first. And then people will reject us. People will curse us. But Jesus also says, blessed are you who suffer on behalf of my name. Now, we are destined to go through hardship. It is inevitable. 
The Thessalonians did, and they held on. Why? Because they were firmly planted in their faith. They knew in whom they believed. See, Paul hadn't been there long, but he, was, he had been there enough to tell them they knew truly who Jesus is. See, we need to be firmly planted in our faith. Now, are you planted? Let me ask you this. What do you believe? Aidan Wilson Tozer, A.W. Tozer, said that what I believe about God is the most important thing about me. What do you believe about God? If I were to ask you a question, how to define the gospel, what would you say? I was in India in November, as most of you know, and I, I decided to do something a little different. I, I had a, a guy travel with me uh, from one of my church, my church in Massachusetts that I had pastored, and he uh, brought a GoPro. And we sat down, and I made it my mission to interview many of those who attended this, this leadership conference uh, that, we, that I was in. And in this conference, I had uh, talked about, um, I asked them questions. I said, can you tell me how you came to know the Lord? What is it about Jesus that attracted you to him? And can you describe or define the gospel for me? What is the gospel? And so many of them, uh, they had come from Buddhist, Sikh, and Hindu background. Many of them had no education whatsoever. And I said, how'd you come to know the Lord? And many of them, had an experience of miraculous healing. Either they had or their family member had. God had revealed himself in some very supernatural and amazing ways that made me just stop and my eyes got really big, just amazed at how God had worked in their life. And I praise God for that. And I would ask him, what was it about Jesus that attracted you? And for many, it was he was one God, or he was a compassionate God. He was the God who would hear my prayers. He was the God who was merciful to me. He was the God who would heal me. So there are many different answers. But then I asked the last question. I said, can you define or describe the gospel to me? And this is where I was very disappointed. Because many of them could say there was one God and he heals us, which is great, very simple understanding. And and again, it could have been the translation. It could have been uh, I didn't ask the right question. But many of them failed to mention Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that that's of first importance. That is the gospel. It's knowing the, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Those are the central parts of the gospel. And it's because God, in and through Christ, the, the person of the, the Son of God, came to reconcile the world to himself because we were disobedient. That he died the death that we were to die. That he took our sins upon himself. That he died on the cross in our place. That he was buried. And three days later, he rose again, showing his death had paid the price for the wages of sin. And that now he, we are to grow in our likeness of who Jesus is. So we need to understand that. And see, Paul is saying here that you need to be, I mean, they could resist temptation. They could resist all these afflictions because they knew the one in whom they had believed. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy, actually 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 14. He says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, he's articulating what this gospel is, why you're suffering, who abolished death and brought life, and immortality to light through the gospel, the good news that God came and uh, as... As man, he assumed our flesh, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. See, this is some amazing words. He says, I know in whom I have believed. In whom have you believed? You know, I, I had, uh, several years ago, I'd read a book called Imaginary Jesus. And in this book, the, the author constructs this world where people encounter these different Jesuses and he's saying that all of them are creations of our own imagination, not the biblical Jesus. He says there's CEO Jesus, there's the men's retreat Jesus, there's the baptism Jesus who's always dragging a baptism tank together, there's the political Jesus who's always wearing a suit and talking about how to vote. There's all these different Jesuses, and they're Jesuses of our own making. See, we have a tendency to create God in our, we say that we are created in God's image, but the reality is, is we make God in our image and construct him after what we want him to be, rather than looking at the biblical Jesus and seeing him for who he is. And when Paul says, I know in whom I have believed, he understood the biblical Christ. And the Thessalonians did too. They understood that. And I have to ask people, who is your Jesus? Is he the biblical Jesus? Or is he a Jesus of your own creation? Your own imagination? Where is the biblical Jesus? The Jesus of the scripture. The Jesus who hates sin. The Jesus who died to save us from us. The, the, the Jesus who condemns the Pharisees and the Sadducees for their hypocrisy. The Jesus who visits and loves sinners. The Jesus who heals. The Jesus who suffers. Who is your Jesus? We need to be planted in the faith to know truly. We need to go to the Word of God to know truly who Jesus is. But I like Paul's words where he says, I know in whom I have believed in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Those are amazing words. See, Paul reminds us that if we cling to Christ, he will guard what we have received, our salvation, until that day. See, that's what he's saying right there. He's saying that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved that day. When it happens, we will experience the fullness of our salvation. See, when Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, he's saying they, they have life now, but eternal life later. There is the already, but not yet. There is more to come in that life that God has for us. That's what he's talking about. We will prevail. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Romans for a moment. Chapter 8, verse 31. When Paul is talking about what we have in Christ, he's talking about God's love for us. God's love for us. And you can just listen in if you don't have a Bible or you have a hard time finding it. But Paul says by the Spirit, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying that we're going to prevail, that if you hold on, that you endure all of these sufferings, understand that what you have at the end of the tunnel is so much greater. It's so much greater. Do we understand what God has for us in Christ? That if we cling to him, that we will prevail. That's our destiny. That if you truly are a follower of Christ, that you will suffer persecution. You will go through pain and hardship but we have to be planted and remember that we will prevail if we hold on. Now, even though we are more than conquerors, we must be mindful that danger still lurks about us. Paul sent Timothy to learn about their faith because he feared that they were casualties of the devil. See, Paul's words remind us that we need to guard against spiritual dangers. Guard against spiritual dangers. As I mentioned before, when it's, I, I led this lady to the Lord, I told her that the devil now has a target on you. I know our Keith Duff is the executive pastor. He tells people right before they're baptized, he says, just so you know, after you are baptized, you're going to experience opposition because the devil knows that you've made a commitment to the Lord and he's after you. We don't talk about that very often in our culture. We talk a lot about the mental and the psychological. We don't talk about the spiritual in that there is an evil one that seeks to rob, to steal, to kill, and destroy. See, the spiritual dangers are looking about us. See, the first danger exists in the form of some smooth talkers. Smooth talkers. See, look back at verse 3 in the phrase, that no one be moved by these afflictions. So the word moved is the Greek word. Uh, it's a very unique word, and it means to wag the tail. And metaphorically, it means to greet, flatter, or disturb. In other words, their afflictions would cause them to move away from Christ. And, and the idea was is someone would be there talking to them about their affliction, saying, God doesn't want you to suffer. God doesn't want you to go through this. God doesn't want that for you. God wants you to be happy. The reason you're suffering right now, you know, those are for fundamentalists. You don't need to do that. God doesn't want that for you. And the idea is this smooth talk would pull people away. It's a seduction that's going on. We have to guard against those who are telling us that's not what God has for us. The Joel Osteens of the world. Those false teachers that say, God doesn't want you to suffer. That's completely contradictory to what the Word of God says. Now, I'm sure that this isn't one that inspires you. Wow, God wants me to suffer. I'm going to go home all happy. The idea is, is that we are able to bear up underneath it, to understand that we have in Christ. Secondly, we have to guard against the danger of suffering. Now, we are going to suffer, but when we do suffer, it's going to, it's going to cause many of us to doubt. 
and there's going to be someone come against us who are going to say what we want to hear, and they're going to, they're, they're going to be well-intentioned. I call them well-intentioned dragons, people that come against us, and they have great intentions, but they say stupid stuff. Have you ever had someone say something really stupid to you in a really difficult moment? You ever had that? Something that just was like, you didn't think that through, did you? You need to think that. You know, you just want to tell them, boop, boop, back up. <laughs> Reverse that. Think about what, you're about to, what you just said. We have to guard against that. Because see, people, when, when suffering occurs, many of us are going to think something's wrong. Just like if we experience pain, the idea is I will remove that thing that's causing me pain. If we're suffering, we think if we remove that thing that's causing me suffering, that I don't have to suffer any longer. Because see, the devil likes to play on our suffering to get us to turn away from Jesus. We see this played out in the life of Job. Job becomes a, in other words, he becomes ground zero for a spiritual war being fought between God and the devil. And the devil's thought process and idea was that the reason that Job is doing so well and following God is that his life is cruising along really well. He's got health, he's got money, he's got a great family, got a great career. What if we take those things away? And I guarantee God that he will curse you to your face. God says, do what you will, just don't kill him. So what's the first thing he does? He goes after his family. He kills all of his kids. So after that, he goes after his career, goes after his job, goes after the way his, his means of making money. And then and, and he goes back, the devil goes right back in front of God. And, he, and God says, see, he hasn't sinned. He hasn't cursed me. The devil goes, Skin for skin. The reason that he's not is because you've guarded him. You put a hedge around him. You won't let me get at him completely. Let me at him. Let me take his health. And you watch, he will curse you to your face. God goes, have your way. Withdraws his protection. And then he attacks Job's health. So much so that his wife even turns against him. That's hard. You know, it's one thing to stand true for God and, and have those closest to you stand with you. But when your own spouse turns against you, that makes it really hard. I mean, notice what his wife says to him in Job chapter 2. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, I hope you've never said that to your spouse. My wife has never said that to me. That's not an encouraging thing. Notice how Job responds, though. He says, you speak, you talk like a foolish woman. I tried this with my wife once. Once. No. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? And I love this next part. And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job did not sin with his lips. He held on. He knew that God is good. See, when we go through suffering, we have a temptation to question God's goodness. God, if you're so good, why am I going through this? We question that he doesn't have our best. And that's when we have a tendency, by the way, to take it back. God, we don't like how you're driving. I'm going to take the wheel. That's what we do. We don't like him when God's driving the car because he's taking us in places that we don't want to go. And we have this tendency to want to pull back the wheel. We want to pump the brakes. We want to have that driver's ed car. We want that side wheel so we can take it over when God's taking us to places we don't want to go. And that's why the devil has tendency to... to to, to play on our suffering, and we have to guard against it. Guard against it. See, we have to guard against 
the smooth talkers. We have to guard against the suffering that comes into our lives and be aware of how the devil is going to use that. We also have to be on guard against the tempter. See, look at verse 5 with me. For this reason, I could bear it no longer. He didn't know what was going on with their faith. Again, they'd been saved, they'd prayed, but now he wanted to see them becoming, they're being saved. They were becoming more like Christ. I mean, they'd been justified. Now they're being, he wanted to see them in their sanctification because he understood to guard it until that day when we will be saved completely. For this reason, I could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you in vain, tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Now, the tempter here is referring to the devil. It's one of his titles. He's known as the tempter, the accuser of the brethren, the great dragon, uh, Beelzebub, the devil, the accuser, our adversary, the deceiver. See, it was the tempter, which is another title for Satan. Satan. We have to guard against Satan because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil seeks to destroy your spiritual life, and he will do it by trying to, dis- to persuade you that your suffering is not what God wants. I had this happen in a very personal way in my own life. Actually, my father died when I was four years old. I've shared that story many different times. Uh, my father became a Christian a year before I was born. And he got caught up with what is now known as the Word of Faith movement. And people told him that, he, that if he went to the doctor, that he didn't have faith, that God would heal him. So he decided not to go to the doctor because he had faith. And then they told him, you know what, if you really have faith, you need to get rid of all your health insurance. Get rid of all of his insurance. Just rely on God alone. So he got rid of all his insurance. But he started getting sicker and sicker and more sick and more sick. Finally, he had to go to the doctor. He just couldn't take it any longer. He went in August of 1979, and they said, um, something's wrong. We need to do some tests. They said, um, we have, Mr. Fleming, we have bad news. You have uh, lung cancer, and um, it's stage four, and it's actually not just in your lungs. It's actually spread to your brain. And so he was diagnosed in August, and by February, he died. He was 35 years old very young. But near the end of his life, actually that last month, the last week, he realized that the teaching he had received was false teaching. He realized it. And on his deathbed, right before he slipped into a coma, he said, he quoted John chapter 10, verse 10. He said, the the thief comes to rob, to steal, to kill and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. He even realized that even in that false teaching, the devil was working, and he had believed it. But he, really, he also recognized that the one who came was Jesus. He came that we might have life and have it to the full. See, even in the midst of his suffering, see, he, people had told him that he shouldn't suffer. He shouldn't be sick. He shouldn't have all this. And see, that's false teaching, and we see it all over television. We experience it all the time. And people are saying, God doesn't desire you to be sick. That doesn't make any logical sense. It's part of our fallen condition because if that's the case, no one would ever die. None of the apostles either. And it's not that God desires our sickness. It's that God has understands and has worked to take on our sicknesses upon himself because he knows the fallen condition that each one of us has to deal with. 
But see, the devil comes against us and gets us to question our suffering. And he's seeking to destroy you. And he has the playbook on your life. He knows all of your tendencies. He knows all of your tactics. He knows all of your sins. He knows, he knows your habits. He knows you better than you know yourself. He's had thousands of years to watch humans. And he knows all of the conditions. He can't get in your head and he can't read your mind. But he can know your life very well. And he knows how to keep you in sin and try to dissuade you of following Jesus. That's why, the, that's why, that's why Paul calls him the tempter. That they're gonna, he's going to offer the flesh to them as well. See, the devil comes and he plays on your sinful flesh and your desires, and he will present it in front of you and make it look normal and acceptable because everybody else around you will be doing it and be celebrating by doing so. And you'll think, they're doing it. Why can't I? They don't seem to suffer any consequences. Why can't I? But see, it's a lie. It's an illusion. Just like that's what pornography is, by the way. It's an illusion. It's a complete lie. It is. That's what it is. It's a lie. Every which way, it's a lie. I mean, you're even, there's some, been some documentaries that have come out that have, di- uh, that have talked about it. There's been women and men that have come out of the world of pornography. They're saying it's a complete lie. Everything about it's a lie. It's an illusion. And people do it all the time to get you to buy it and keep you in spiritual prison and chained. And that's what he's doing to so many Christians today. People now can access it on their phones and do whatever they want to do. The devil is tempting you to pull you away from your devotion to Christ. And he will do anything to do it. He will use porn. He will use entertainment. He'll just keep you busy. He'll do whatever he can to keep you from walking and doing what God wants you to do and becoming more like Jesus. If it's finances, if it's family, if it's affirmity, he will do anything and everything to keep you pacified and away from following Jesus. And porn right now seems to be the thing that's working like crazy. And it's reeling Christians in and putting a bars upon them. And it's destroying their lives to the point where now even unbelievers are saying, even doctors are coming out saying, this is harmful. This is worse than heroin. It's more addictive. And it's equally as destructive. It's not something you can play with. It's not something you just struggle with. It is outright rebellion to God. We need to learn to fight against that temptation because the tempter, that's what he's doing. He's tempting you. He's playing on your simple desire. You have a desire for sexuality and sexual expression. God has given us that. But our fallen condition has modified it in such a way that we want to fulfill it in illicit ways. We have to learn to channel it in the way that God wants it to be. That's what God has called us to do. And that's what Paul recognized. The tempter just came out of in a variety of different ways. And they had to learn to fight against it. And we are in danger. They come through smooth talkers, suffering, and through Satan. You can even put seduction. You could do that. There's so many different ways. Sexuality, sensuality. So many different ways that the devil will try to get a foothold on your life. And we must learn to fight against it. We have to recognize it. Now, Satan, though, really does, though, try to work through suffering. Matter of fact, a supreme, the most supreme example of this is found in the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 through 22. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 9, it said that he, he set his face, like, and Isaiah says it was like flint. 
He knew why he had come. Throughout the scriptures, we hear of different episodes where it says, my time is not yet. Jesus says it. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Well, time had come. He knew that he came to die. He had to suffer. He had to. It was foreordained. God had said it within his word. There had to be suffering and a payment for sin. And he tells his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and I will be killed. I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised. And they still didn't grasp the resurrection yet. It was not on their radar. And Peter took him aside. And, and i got to admire, admire Peter here. I, 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 he's got some chutzpah. Because he's doing, you're to, when you have a conflict of some sort, you're, you're, you're to... Uh, praise in public, and you're to criticize in private. So he pulls Jesus away from everybody else, and he rebukes him. He goes, Jesus, I just need to have a conversation with you. You're telling everybody about you're going to Jerusalem, you're going to die. You're not going to die. I got your back. You're, you're, the, you're the son of God. You're the savior. You're the redeemer. You're the Messiah. We've been waiting for you. You're not going to die. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus recognizes this. He recognized the thought that it's at its root. This is not of God. And Jesus says this. I mean, he rebukes him hard. He says, and if you look at the text in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the th- things of men. On the things of men. You even see him, that last moment, I mean, he understood that this was satanic in origin, that the devil was trying to keep him from suffering, because it was through suffering that he was fulfilling the will of the Father. See, God has us go through suffering to purify us, to make us more like Jesus. You know, as C.S. Lewis once said, he said, God whispers, us, whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Because the reality is, when everything's going well, we don't need God. It's when we go through hardship that we cling to God. We cling to God. We cling to him more and more. See, we have to guard against the tempter because he's trying to pull Peter away, I mean, from Jesus away from suffering. And supremely, it even happens right before he goes to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the last moment right there, right before when he's battling the evil one. All the disciples have deserted him. There's none left. Remember, the story of our parents' first disobedience happened in a garden. And now Jesus, who is the new Adam, the second Adam, is in a garden. And the tempter was there and took him out. Now the tempter's there again. And Jesus, everything within his humanity, wanted not to suffer. But he says, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. That he submitted himself to the divine will, and that meant suffering. And if he suffered, we will too, by association with him, as we've read and seen. We have to understand that. That's part of what God has made us to be. I'm not saying go out and seek suffering. That's not it. But if you're truly following Jesus, you will inevitably face some type of suffering. As believers, we need to always be ready to go, to tell, to die, to help people become saved and that they are saved. It can be assured of their salvation, but to help progress in their salvation. They are saved, they are being saved, and they will be saved so that they can enter into glory, understanding that he is able to guard it until that day, what they have received in Christ, that we begin to partake of it now, but we have the fullest expression of it then. When he said, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full, we have life now, but we have eternal life with him forever and ever.
And as believers, we need to be always ready to go, go to tell, and go to die. We need to be ready for all that God has for us as husbands, as mother, wives, as fathers and mothers, as co-workers, as students, as neighbors. We don't have to come back, but we have to tell people. Tell them in our workplaces, tell them in our schools, no matter what the cost might be, are we ready to go? Are we ready to invest our life to build God's kingdom in and through the hearts of his people? We need to go and tell the greatness, tell the world the greatness of who God is so that others may experience the joy of knowing him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I'm reminded of all my own weakness today, but I'm also reminded of your strength, your power, your glory. I'm reminded that you are the God who still saves, the God who cares so much for us, that you care about our relationship with you and that we grow as disciples, Lord, that we're, once we discover you, we're to grow in you so we might be deployed in that ministry that you have for us. Lord, I pray for everyone here today, Lord, that they might grow in their understanding of who you are, that they might be able to grasp what you have destined them for, that they might be able to stand up against the opposition and the persecution that the evil one will inevitably bring, that they might understand their identity in you, that they might be able to understand and articulate and know truly and be able to reiterate what the words of the Apostle Paul when he said that I know in whom I have believed and he is able to guard what I've entrusted into him until that day. Lord, may we be able to articulate those words knowing that we were destined for affliction we're going to go through a hard time but we need to be ready, prepared for all that you have for us in Christ. Lord, help us to pursue you. We know that you love us with an everlasting love that you know and you have told us within your word that all who seek to be godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Lord, teach us how to suffer well, to testify to your greatness, to love you the way that you love us, knowing that we only can love you because you first loved us. And Lord, help us to truly look forward to that day with, with hope and excitement, knowing that you have for us in Christ, that we shall see him for we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And we know now, Lord, that we see through a veil, through a, as a, in a mirror dimly, that there's a veil that remains over us. We can't see entirely all that you have for us, but Lord, we cling to the promises of your word that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Lord, we look forward in hope, asking you to give us the faith to persevere, to hold on, even when we want to give up. We pray your blessing on us. Lord, help us to resist temptation, to fight against it, and to glorify your name in our lives. We pray your blessing on us now, in Jesus' name. Amen.